0: Well, as we open God's Word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to open your Word and we thank you that you have given it to us, that you have spoken, that you have given us spiritual food that we might be nourished by it. And I ask, Lord, that you would please strengthen us this day to hear your Word, to hear it with humble hearts, to hear it with repentant hearts, to hear it with teachable hearts. We ask that you would please have us hear what you want from us in your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we know, it is Christmas time where we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is during this season that we celebrate that the Son of God came, took on flesh and dwelt among us, as John 1:14 says. He came, as we've already said, the service, He came to bring us peace. He came to bring us joy. He came to give humanity hope. We celebrate this at Christmas because all of these blessings are not just an ethereal general thing, but these blessings have come to us. They've come to you, have they not? And we now, 2,000 years after Christ, we today in 2023 can have peace real true lasting peace we can have joy real true lasting joy and we can have hope real lasting hope but we need to remember friends that this these wonderful blessings that you're going to see on christmas cards that you're going to see posted around on banners this, is hope and peace and joy, these are blood-bought blessings. These are blessings that only come to us because there was a sacrifice that was made. Jesus had to purchase them through His blood upon the cross. And therefore, every Christmas, we cannot simply stay at the manger. We must also go to the cross. Every Christmas, we cannot forget about Easter. We can't forget that Jesus was born to die. In fact, the angel told Joseph, you remember, that the child born to Mary would save his people from their sins. And so, because of that, because of the great plan of God to work out our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross, the shadow of the cross hung over the entire ministry of our Lord. And even though it wasn't a beeline to the cross, he didn't suddenly become baptized and then he'd get put on a cross a day later. No, there was years of ministry. But that's ultimately where his life and ministry would end up. It had to, it had to end up on the cross because Isaiah 53 had prophesied that the Messiah would be killed for the sins of his people. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, the very heart of that wonderful chapter, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been working through weekly our exposition of the book of Luke. And today we find ourselves in chapter 22 of this great book. And I encourage you to open there if you haven't already. Turn in your personal copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. If you don't have your own copy, you're welcome to turn there in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And you'll find our passage today on page 1048. Page 1048. Last week, we looked at... In verses 1 through 13 of this chapter, how Jesus was preparing for Passover, this festival, this feast that the Jews celebrated. And he prepared it by sending two disciples into the city of Jerusalem and began to prepare it in advance so that Judas, the one who had prepared to betray Jesus, would not know where that room would be. And so, having prepared the Passover, today in our passage, we're going to see Jesus and his disciples partaking of that sacred meal. But more than that, we will see that he transforms that meal. He doesn't just celebrate Passover, but he transformed Passover in a way that brings blessing to us today. The scene here is an intimate one. It's Jesus with his chosen disciples. It's on the night before his execution, the night before the cross. He is spending intentional, specific, special time with his disciples, men that he selected and men that he has spent the last three and a half years training. And so let's now read these verses before us. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, down through verse 20. It says, and when the hour came... He, being Jesus, reclined at table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. In my blood thus ends the reading of God's Word may God impress its truths on all our hearts I want to suggest for us this morning that as we look at this classic text of the Last Supper of Jesus Christ that what we see here the aroma that fills this passage is the love that Christ has for his people It is his heart for the disciples and by extension then his heart for us, his church today, that is most captivating here. Jesus did not go mechanically to the cross. He didn't go simply with a hand upon his back, simply fulfilling a plan, checking a box. His heart was full of love for his people. And so, believer... This is a reminder this morning that his heart was full of love for you as he went to the cross. And we see that here on the night before that crucifixion. Too often in the Christmas season, we can think about God's love in a generic way. But it's important that we remember his specific love. That there wasn't just this general love over the planet, a general love over humanity, but that as we have come to find in each one of our journeys, in each one of our walk of faith, that Christ has loved us specifically. He has called us out that we might know him. The baby born in a manger grew to be the Savior that we read in this passage, the Savior who loves his people. And so therefore, as we look at these verses this morning, I pray that you would allow them to provide a depth to your Advent celebration this year. Let your heart be drawn to the man, Christ Jesus, not just the baby, the cute baby in the manger, because it is this man who lives today and who lives forevermore, and it is this man who loves you today with the greatest love. And so as we peer now into this supreme love of Christ while he eats this final meal with his disciples before his crucifixion, I want to suggest that here we can see two responses that you and I must have so that we would draw near to our Savior and treasure Him above all else during not only the Advent season, but also all year round. Two responses that we must have to Christ's love that we would draw near to Him. So let's begin by looking at the first response that this passage evokes, should evoke from us. And that is, number one, that we must hope In our reunion with him we must hope in our reunion with him and we see this in verses 14 through 18 verses 14 through 18 and let's look first now how Jesus initiates this this last meal with his disciples again as we said it's a special meal it's an intimate meal uh, but it's special in more ways than one And so let's pick up this narrative in verse 14 as we already read, but look at it again with me. It says, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Remember, we've already read as we looked at last week that he had two of his disciples prepare that meal, Peter and John, as it says, and they went into the city and they prepared it. And so verse 13, you'll look a verse earlier, it says they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Well, having prepared everything, making it ready, Peter and John then went back outside the city, uh, presumably to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus and the other disciples were waiting and says, hey, everything is ready, everything's prepared, you can come. And so as the day was waning and the sun was going down and they were preparing to eat this meal within the walls of Jerusalem, they made their way into the city and into this upper room, which was prepared for them. They would have entered and taken their places around the table there in the room. Now, we think of entering a room and sitting at table, and we probably think of the long kind of banquet table that maybe you sat around for Thanksgiving, where there's it's a long table and there's chairs that go all the way around it, and, and we all sit around that and, and are looking in on one another in that way. But the tables, the, they... Uh, ate dinners at were not like that. They didn't sit at a table. They reclined at a table, which sounds strange to us, but this was how it was done all over the ancient world. And that is why verse 14 says that they reclined at table. That's the actual word is to recline. And so you can think of a horseshoe type of, of arrangement, a low table, not high off the ground, Uh, too high off the ground, about 18 inches or so. And uh, it was uh, arranged in a horseshoe fashion so that there was uh, uh, three sides to uh, the square, as it were, so that the servants could go into that empty side and serve the food amongst the three other sides. They would uh, recline on their left elbow so that they could eat then with their right as they picked off of their plate and off of the table. This arrangement also explains several other um, aspects of this Last Supper meal. We can begin to think about where the disciples might be placed. And we don't know the full seating arrangement. We don't have that kind of diagram given to us in the Gospels. But we can try to piece some things together. It's, it's understood by scholars that, that John probably w- reclined to the right of Jesus. That Jesus was right at the dead center of the horseshoe, as it were, and at the head of the table, and to his right reclined John. So you can picture Jesus reclining here. He's eating. John is to his right eating. And at a point in the meal where it's a question about who betrayed Jesus, it says that John leaned back into the bosom of Jesus. And this is how he would be able to do so, because he'd be leaning, he'd be looking back towards Jesus, who was essentially kind of behind him at that point. We also then suppose that Judas was then to the left of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus and Judas have an exchange in which they are putting, uh, Jesus is giving him a morsel of bread. He needs to be nearby in order for that to happen. John, or uh, Peter rather, is somewhere else in the, probably on one of the sides of the horseshoe. Uh, he's not right next to Jesus, and which is why John says that he motions to John to, uh, why don't you ask Jesus who, who's the betrayer? And so he kind of makes a motion to John and John then leans back and asks Jesus. And we'll look at that more closely next week. But this helps us to begin to see how how they were reclining and laying out with their feet out away from the table and how they may have been, uh, how few of them may have been sitting. As they began eating, we know from John chapter 13 that Jesus did a remarkable thing. He got up and left his spot at the head of the table And he then began to wash his disciples' feet. This taught them a a lesson in humility and service. Because this was a task usually reserved for a servant. And we don't know, did a servant just forget to wash their feet? And so Jesus is kind of like, "Um, okay, I guess I'll do it. Or did he arrange ahead of time? I tend to think that he may have asked the host to not have the servant wash their feet so that he might intentionally teach his disciples a lesson. We don't know. But either way, Jesus took the opportunity to serve his men. Now, verse 14 and 15 here in our text make it clear that Jesus ate a Passover meal with his disciples. Some believe that it wasn't the Passover. Some believe it was something else. But I believe these verses make it very clear that they prepared the Passover. And then Jesus says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. This meal was loaded with tradition and included essential elements from God's instruction to Moses and the people of Israel dating back to the Exodus. Remember, this was commemorating. This was remembering what God had done. This was a memorial meal of how God had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. in fact, I want you to listen to God's instructions that he gave Israel from Exodus chapter 12. Listen to what he says. The Lord says, in this manner you shall eat it. This is eating of the Passover meal. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. You can see here this instruction to uh, keep this feast as a memorial. This is something that the people of Israel were to do every single year and to remember, remember God's salvation, that he saved them, that even though the wrath of God had come, that the blood that was put upon the doorpost from the lamb had saved them. And in God's mercy, he passed over them. And so this was a highly significant and very important feast for the people of Israel as they celebrated the fact that God himself, Yahweh, had chosen them, a great people, no, a glorious people, no. They were a lowly people, people that had nothing in them among themselves for, for which God had turn his attention towards them, and yet he chose them, he elected them, and then he saved them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. And so they were set apart unto himself. Now, over time, in order to develop on how this Passover meal was celebrated... And how it was consumed. We see generally what is to take place in Exodus 12, but exactly what are the steps that were involved in this Passover meal uh, developed over time, and we have Jewish records that talk about uh, the order in which these things were to happen. It wasn't like our meals sometimes, where we uh, all gather together, we say grace, and then it's a free for all, where we hey pass that, pass this, and let's all start diving in. There were you could think of it more of a of, as a formal meal with different courses, in which they had to eat it in a certain sequence, and each sequence was laden with significance. The main elements of the Passover meal were as follows. Let me just walk you through these, and we'll make reference to them as then we go through the text. But it always began with a prayer of thanksgiving by the head of the house. And after this prayer of thanksgiving, then there was the, uh, the first cup of wine was drank. Now, there are four cups of wine that were, were drank in the Passover meal, and this is the first one. Then there would be this eating of bitter herbs that would take place. And the reason that there were bitter herbs, because it was a reminder of the bitter slavery that Egypt or uh, Israel endured in Egypt. Then would follow uh, that the the eldest son would would offer this inquiry. He would ask, this is a formal thing where he would be tasked to ask this question each Passover: why is this night distinguished from all other nights? And the father would then give an appropriate reply, narrated or read from the book of Exodus. Then they would, there would be singing, singing part of the halal, which is these psalms in, uh, in the book of Psalms. And particularly they would sing Psalm 113 and 114 uh, to begin this uh, meal. And then there would be washing of hands. And then there would be the second cup of wine that would be partaken of. And then would come to kind of the main course or the, the main meal, as it were. These other things were kind of samplings leading up to this main eating in which there would be the carving and the eating of the lamb together with the unleavened bread. So the lamb that was sacrificed and then roasted would then be uh, eaten in commemoration of what their ancestors did, that generation of Israelites, when they had to do that night when the angel of the Lord passed over and they had to eat of that lamb that was, and the, that blood that was spread on the doorposts. The unleavened bread was then also eaten. It, remember, it was unleavened because they couldn't wait for it to rise. They were to eat it in haste. They would be ready to go. And in fact, the way that God instructed Israel to eat it in Exodus was they were to eat it standing up so that they were ready literally to go at a moment's notice over time that uh that passed, and they, they reclined for the meal. But the point is still there that it is to be unleavened. And that is why they were to, in preparation for the Passover, they were to literally sweep and to, to wipe down all surfaces to get all leaven out of their house. They had to purge their dwelling places of all leaven, not only for the one day of Passover, but then for the, the feast of unleavened bread that went for seven days after. So there was a whole, whole week in which they were, they were to be leaven-free. But then after this official part of the meal, it would, uh, they, they would continue to eat. They would continue to eat as much as they, they'd like, and they needed to consume the whole lamb. They couldn't have any left until the morning. This was an instruction also given in Exodus 12. And then after the meal was finished, the third cup would be consumed, the cup of blessing or sometimes called the cup of redemption. And then... Finally, there would be a singing of the last part of the halal, Psalms 115 to 118. And and then the fourth cup of wine would be drank. And this order is still largely followed today in traditional Jewish homes, although they don't eat lamb anymore. Uh, after the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the temple and the, the fact that they couldn't bring their lambs to be sacrificed anymore, tradition, so there was some debate among rabbis and eventually the eating of lamb went away. And, and today, as I understand, they have, they have other meats, that, beef and, and whatnot that they may eat um, that is still part of this Passover meal. But all this is necessary background to understand this is what Jesus and the disciples sat down to do, this traditional Passover meal. But let's look now at Jesus' words in verse 15. It's all there, they're reclining, apostles are with them. Verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We need to pause on these words just for a moment, because these words are not found in any other gospel other than the Luke. He's the only one that records them. And this word, the, the words here translated, I have earnestly desired, uh, translates a, 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 a funny Greek idiom underneath it, really, uh, that's borrowed from the Hebrew that, that uh, would be funny if we said it literally. If this was translated literally, it would say, I have desired with desire, you're like, okay, what does that mean? And that's why the translators have, there's an intensity to the desire here. I have, I have desired with desire, saying I have earnestly desired. I have, I have a strong desire. It's hard to communicate how strong this is, he says, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Here we see, friends, the heart of Jesus Christ. He has a longing to be with his people. He has a longing to be with his disciples on this special occasion, and it's all made all the more weighty in light of his impending suffering. He says, before I suffer, he wants to spend these precious hours, the remaining hours that he has here with his disciples. Of course, we know the disciples, on the other hand, were somewhat blind to the fact of what was about to come, that he would be hanging on the cross in a matter of hours, of course, this meal was special to them, but it was only until later that they, that they really, uh, after the resurrection, they realized how special this time was, and, and hence them for several of them to record it down for us. Now, some scholars believe this very well could have been Jesus' first time hosting the Passover meal. That for, for a man to host a Passover, you had to have at least 10 guests or more. And uh, this is the only record that we have of Jesus actually hosting this meal and being the one to initiate and to run the Passover meal, as it were. And of course, we know it would be his last. Not only his last Passover, but it would also be his last meal with his disciples before uh, his crucifixion. And so Jesus' heart was so full his ministry, it all culminated to this point. He knew what was gonna, what was gonna become in the next several hours. And, and so he's, his heart is, is heavy, but his heart is full of love for his disciples. And we see that described for us in John 13, verse one, where John records this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world He loved them to the end. What a beautiful statement of our Savior's love. That Jesus there, when when the cross loomed before him, when his suffering was there, what was on his heart? It was his love for his disciples. And not just a little bit. He loved them to the end, it says. And I believe that John wrote this verse, John 13, 1, so that believers since so that you and I, as we read it, as a fresh generation of believers reading these verses, would know the love of Christ for us. In other words, Christian, we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ has an active and abiding love for you and I. He has loved you to the end. That was his heart for his disciples who are representatives of all of us who have come after him, come after them in faith in the church. And so I believe by putting together John 13:1 with our passage here in Luke twenty two fifteen, 15, we get this picture that Jesus loved his disciples, loved being with them, and so he longed, he earnestly desired to spend this final meal with them before he suffered. He knew he would be departing from earth. He knew he would be returning to heaven. But he makes clear that he wants to spend time with his disciples, And so he makes, then he goes on in verses 16, 17, and 18 to make clear that he's not going to participate in this meal again until the kingdom. These are, again, unique statements that are only found in the book of Luke. Look at it with me. Verse 16 he says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And 17 he says, And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, I believe that this cup here, verse 17, some have thought that this is the same cup that he then goes on and and institutes the Lord's Supper with later on in verse 20. I believe that this is a different cup. Again, as we went through the aspects of Passover, there were four different cups in the Passover celebration. I think this one, verse 17, is the first cup. This is the first one that initiates the meal in which the head of the household gives a prayer of thanks and then they drink from the first cup. It says here that Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he, he then said, take this cup and he passed it around for them to all partake in that cup. But distinctly here, we see two declarations. Two declarations in which Jesus says that he's not gonna eat of this meal and he's not gonna drink of this vine until the kingdom of God until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God or until the kingdom of God comes. This would be the last feast until the kingdom, the last messianic feast until the kingdom arrives. And I believe this is just another indication in the gospel of Luke that Jesus' messianic kingdom was not inaugurated or established at his first coming. The kingdom is still future. Jesus says that it's still awaiting we await the king to return before this kingdom is established and when this meal will be held. Some see that this, he's talking about the meal that the church partakes in in the, uh, the Lord's Supper, but I don't believe that that is accurate. This is talking about a physical meal. He's saying, I'm, the physical meal I'm eating now, I'm not going to physically eat again until the kingdom of God arrives, This messianic banquet he talked about in in Luke chapter 13 and says the people are gonna come from East and West Gentiles are gonna come and join Abraham Isaac and Jacob at this table and partake of this great messianic feast and it's there in the kingdom that all that will be fulfilled Jesus says in verse 16 that this meal this Passover meal is going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God It will be fulfilled in that day because it will be there that God's people will be gathered together under the blood of the Lamb of God and they will enjoy the blessings of fellowship with him. Indeed, we have fellowship with the Son of God now. But there is still something missing. We do not yet see him face to face. We still are not with him bodily. And we await that day when it will happen, when we'll see him as he is when we'll be transformed and we'll enjoy fellowship with him forevermore. That will take place when he returns and he sets up his kingdom. Now, why would Jesus make these two declarations here at this time in the Last Supper, in the upper room? Why would he emphasize twice that he won't partake of this feast with his disciples until the kingdom? Well, I believe he does it for two reasons. One is to provide hope that the kingdom would come. These disciples are about to see their leader, about to see the Savior, go under horrific torture and death. And no doubt their their faith could be totally shaken. Their questions rolling through their mind of, of what have we just done? What have we given our lives to? The man that we have followed that we believe was Messiah was just crucified and laid in a grave. And the world now mocks us. But Jesus reminds them, here, listen, there is going to be a future kingdom I'm going to come again, and I'm going to be eaten with you disciples, so don't forget that. But there's a second reason that he gave these words, and that is, as we've been saying, to communicate his love for his disciples. Because what is going to be the occasion for eating this again? Is it just when Jesus is with his father? No who is he going to be with again in order to enjoy this meal? It's going to be with his disciples again. It's going to be in, this, in the kingdom. In other words, hey, I'm eating with this meal with you now, but I'm not going to eat of this again until we're then physically together in the kingdom eating again. Jesus desires to return to establish his kingdom. He, he once feasted with his people and he's going to dine with with them again he's going to dine with all of his people in that great messianic banquet and i want you to see the prophecy of this just briefly if you turn back with me to isaiah chapter 25 isaiah chapter 25 we've seen this before but it's helpful to see it again of the prophecy of the banquet that will take place Just for a little bit of uh, context, Isaiah 24 is all about this great cataclysmic judgment that Yahweh Himself will bring upon the entire planet. This accords with the great end-time judgment of the tribulation in which the whole uh, planet will be affected. And then, if you look at the last verse of verse 24… Verse 24, 23, then the moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be there, will be before his elders. So here we have judgment through all of chapter 24, and then 24 ends with Yahweh reigning in Jerusalem. We have the kingdom that has begun. And so then we go into 25, and we get aspects and conditions of the kingdom. And so look at verse 6. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, this is the feast. This is the reunion that we are looking forward to. And we will say, we have waited for you, Lord. And yet here you have come. And you provided everything that we need. This, this feast that just represents everything that is good. Everything the Lord provides for us. We know now, as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But we await the day when the not only will we experience all the spiritual blessings, but we will then have all of the material blessings. When this world will be transformed. When death will be rid and tears will be wiped away. And we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so church, we wait with hope as we wait to be reunited to Jesus when we can participate in this meal with him when the kingdom comes. We will feast with him. We will enjoy the richness of the salvation that he offers. We will rejoice on that day. And so I ask you, is your heart encouraged with the hope that you will be reunited with Jesus Christ one day? Are you setting your sights on that future day? Or are you getting too bogged down with the the things of this life, the things of the day-to-day without setting your gaze upon what, what Christ has told us to of the future day that awaits us? We can be encouraged. We must respond to his love by hoping in our reunion that he has promised to us. But there's a second Way that we need to respond to the supreme love of Christ in this passage that I want to show you. And that's in verses 19 through 20. And we must, secondly, remember his sacrifice for us. We must remember his sacrifice for us. Back in Luke chapter 22, we see here that Jesus then goes further into the Passover meal. And it's here in this Passover that he then begins to transform the elements that are here and converting it into what we know today as the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, or communion. He transforms the Passover meal into a meal for the church. And it's from this scene, testified in all three synoptic gospels and also testified in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we receive the instruction to practice communion or the Lord's Supper. It's also from these uh, verses that we, you, you've heard the word Eucharist, comes from the Greek, Greek word behind uh, in verse 19 where it says when he had given thanks, the word for given thanks, Eucharist duo. And so you can hear the word Eucharist that came out of that. And so it's here that we get the, the foundational passage on why the church celebrates communion, why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because, you see, there's only two ordinances the Lord gave to us. One was baptism, through the waters of baptism. And secondly is, is communion. And it's here that we see Jesus first teach on communion. And it is in this teaching that, yes, do we receive instructions on what to do? Absolutely. But more importantly, it's here in these instructions that Jesus expresses his love for us as he anticipates his death. But let's first get our bearings here. We talked about the Passover meal, right, the different courses that were a part of that. The first cup was mentioned in verse 17. I believe then they had, uh, they sang their halal uh, hymns, the psalms, and then they partook of the second cup And then they began to eat the supper. They began to eat the meal that included the lamb and the unleavened bread. And it's in the midst of that meal, as they're enjoying the lamb and eating of the unleavened bread, that Jesus then begins to uh, partake and begins to pull out these elements and begins to teach with them. The first element that he, he teaches is in the bread. We see this in verse 19. First element that displays his love is in the, in the bread. They were enjoying the meal, and then it says, look at verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. He gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so he says, he takes the bread, he breaks it, he begins to pass out pieces of it around the table, And he says, as he does so, this is my body. Now, Christians down through the centuries have interpreted this phrase differently as it relates to the practice of communion. No doubt you've heard these uh, differing views on how much is the elements that we take, how much does it reflect the body, the actual body and blood of Christ. Not to get us bogged down in this, but just so that you're aware. It began with the Roman Catholic Church that through the many centuries leading up uh, to the Reformation, really, that uh, they be taught this doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, a long word, simply means that they believe that the elements actually turned into the body and blood of Christ, not symbolic, but actual. That you're actually eating flesh and blood, and that's still the view of the Catholic Church today. And this uh, view is tied to their doctrine of Mass, in which Christ is resacrificed every Mass. This Rightly so, Protestants have rejected this as unbiblical. They've rejected the mass as unbiblical. Christ sacrificed once and for all. We don't re-sacrifice him um, every time we gather. And secondly, uh, there is no indication in the Scriptures that these elements are actually the body and blood of Christ. There's no way in which the disciples there on that day believe that as Jesus said, this is my body, and he handed them a piece of bread, that they really believe that 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 bread that they were then going to eat was actually part of his flesh of the guy sitting right there. Now, rightly, the reformers of the 16th century rejected this, and so some differing views of the Protestant Church began to be formed. The first was the Lutherans. So you take Martin Luther, the first kind of reformer to push back, and uh, he developed a view that's uh, been called the real presence, or sometimes consubstantiation. And he taught that, well, the, the, the elements didn't rit- literally, literally turn into the body and blood of Christ, but Christ's uh, body and blood is, is on, with, and under the elements. It's, a, it's around them in some supernatural way. And so it was a step away from the Catholic Church, but it was just a small step. And I, I don't believe it's very clear. So then the, the, the Reformed church, uh, those under John Calvin and others, they continue to take a further step and they, they call it the, the spiritual presence view. And they say that Jesus spiritually nourishes his people through these elements. And, and I would say this view has a lot to commend itself to it. Uh, and there's a, there's a piece of this that we, we can't neglect, as I'll explain in the next view, which is a memorial view. Uh, can't simply be uh, physical elements. There is something that God is doing to us spiritually. He's reminding us through the Holy Spirit and through these elements. But um, that's where we, along with most of the Christian church today, follow the view of Huldrych Zwingli, uh, who developed this in Switzerland, called the Memorial View. And he, he based his view based upon the text here in Luke as well as in 1 Corinthians 11, in which Jesus said, what was this meal to be taken for? It was to be taken in remembrance of Jesus. So remembrance, memorial, were to eat this simply as to remember what Christ did. And so the body, the bread rather, is symbolic of the body of Christ. It represents the body of Christ. It isn't literally the body of Christ. Again, in no way did the disciples think that somehow the flesh and blood, the cells of Jesus made it over into the bread when they ate it. It was still bread, but they understood that it represented his body, it symbolized his body, and they were to eat it in remembrance of him. And we see here in verse 19, did he take a bunch of pieces of bread? No, he took one bread, the matzah, and he began to break it up into several pieces, and so that single bread, broken up into many pieces, represented the unity that was there amongst the people, and likewise represents our unity, that even though we aren't physically breaking off a piece of one bread for us all this morning, that's, that's essentially what we have to remember is taking place. The same is with one cup. We're not going to pass around one cup here this morning where we all drink out of it, but the, the concept is there, is that we are drinking out of one cup to represent the unity that we have in Christ. Now, why, why does... Jesus say, what does he say that's significant about his body? He says, look at verse 19, which was given, which is given for you. Notice that it doesn't say that his body was broken for us. Sometimes you'll hear that, right? That this is my body which was broken for you. And the reason why that has come into our Christian language is because of, I believe, a a, a wrong translation in the King James and New King James in 1 Corinthians 11, which is based upon some manuscripts that I don't believe are as old and as reliable, and therefore I don't believe are as original. And because, and I believe it's important for this reason, because the scriptures make it very clear that when Jesus went to the cross, his bones were not broken, They may go out of their way to say that not a bone of Christ was broken in fulfillment of prophecy. And that was also the true of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was not to have any bones broken, and so too Jesus, our great Passover lamb, didn't have any of his bones broken either. His body was given for us, not broken. But friends, as we settle into the Christmas season, the gift-giving season, we need to realize and be reminded That there was indeed no greater gift that was given than Christ giving of himself for us. In fact, I want you just to, to highlight for your eyes to see with freshness this morning the word in verse 19, given for you. This is my body given for you. Christ, the gift giver, gave himself for you. This is the height of his generosity. He gave his life for his church. He gave his life for his people. And Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. Jesus gave himself for us as a sacrifice. He, he literally took himself to the altar. He handed himself over to the priest that he would be slaughtered upon the altar for us, sinful mankind. oh church what love is this what wondrous love is this that he would lay down his life for us the apostle Paul celebrated this love when he declared in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God we need to remember that that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for us and I ask you have you lost sight of that this morning Lost sight of the fact that Christ was, gave himself as a sacrifice for you? Have you lost sight of the freshness of this? Has it become a distant truth rather than a present gift that you hold in your hands that you're weeping and thankful that he gave it to you? That he did this on your behalf? Well, if we see his, this bread that was representing his body which was given for us, we need to obey his words at the end of verse 19. Do this, in remembrance of me. And we're going to do that here in a moment. But we need to look lastly at the the second way to remember his sacrifice for us, and that is in the cup. We've looked in in the bread. Let's look now in the cup, verse 20. It says, verse 20, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Verse 20 makes it clear. Notice that it was after they had finished the meal, after they had eaten, after the supper. This, I believe, clearly identifies then the cup that he took up was that third cup of Passover, the cup of redemption. Our Lord timed it so that the cup that he would transform was the cup in the Passover meal called the cup of redemption. And redemption it was, wasn't it? This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. No longer would that cup represent redemption of Israel out of Egypt. That cup would now signify his death and the redemption that was won at Calvary. Again, Jesus didn't mean that the wine in the cup actually turned to blood cells The disciples wouldn't have understood it that way. Rather, the fruit of the vine represented His blood. It was to serve as a physical symbol and reminder of the blood that was shed, that was going to be shed, future still as of this statement. Now, Luke uniquely records the cup represents the new covenant in His blood. The new covenant in his blood. And we don't have time to turn there this morning, but Jeremiah 31, as I read at the beginning of our service, describes explicitly this new covenant. The new covenant is talked about in several places in the Old Testament, but explicitly in Jeremiah 31. You can write this down. Jeremiah 31, uh, beginning in verse 31. And there in that passage it described that the Lord was going to do, write a new covenant with Israel, no longer like the old one, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that Israel broke. Even though God was gracious to Israel, he is now going to uh, cut a new covenant with Israel. The law is not cast aside. All God's people will know him. Well, all God's people will know the law. It will be in, the law will be placed in their hearts and they will know the Lord. They will have an intimate relationship and communion with him. And then he gives the great promise that he will forgive their sins and he'll remember their iniquity no more. This is what the whole covenant hinges on, that God would wipe them clean of their sins. He wiped them clean of their iniquities. Now we, this this covenant was given to Israel. And the the verses right afterward in that passage describe that God is going to keep Israel as a nation. As long as the sun keeps coming up and the moon keeps coming up, God's going to keep Israel as a nation before him until this new covenant is fulfilled. But here back in Luke 22, Jesus is clearly saying the new covenant has been ratified with the shedding of his blood, the new covenant's been inaugurated, it's been started. And so we talk about being a part of the New Covenant. In fact, the New Testament, our section of scriptures, the New Testament, is another way to talk about the New Covenant. Testament and Covenant are saying the same thing. And so we participate in the New Covenant today. We are New Covenant believers, but take note of this, it is not fully fulfilled yet. It awaits a future day when Israel as a nation will be regenerated and restored. The trustworthiness of God's Character and his promise rests upon that. In fact, Presbyterian pastor and author Dale Ralph Davies has a timely word here. He says, contemporary Gentile believers must not assume that the covenant is all ours and that Israel has no more place in it. It is, strictly speaking, their covenant. We must not think we can hijack this covenant as our own. Rather, we piggyback on Israel's privileges in that covenant. We must never forget that we are Gentile add-ins to the Israelite olive tree, as Romans 11 says. Friends, in the new covenant, Israel was not pushed aside to make room for the Gentile church in which we replace Israel. Rather, the covenant promise was given to Israel, and then in the gospel, the door was opened wider so that we, as Gentiles, are able to participate in those covenant promises. The new covenant was inaugurated with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because of the grace of God, you and I are able to participate in that amazing covenant. And the primary benefit that we receive through this covenant is the forgiveness of our sins. In fact, Matthew records Jesus' words at the giving of the cup. Matthew records Jesus' words this way. It says drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus made it explicit that this new covenant that is being poured out that is being inaugurated here through my death is for your forgiveness of sins. And folks, this is the crux of the gospel. This is the the reality of the good news that we preach and we believe is that Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we can be forgiven. This is the good news that we celebrate each and every week when we gather. This is the good news that we celebrate each day as we remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us. And this is the good news that we proclaim from the housetops into the nations, that Jesus Christ has shed his blood and therefore forgiveness of sins is offered to all. We need only come to him in repentance and faith. And so I encourage you, listen up this morning. If you hear nothing else, if you take nothing else with you through your Advent season this year, then take this. Because of his great love, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like you and sinners like me. Sinners who are totally undeserving. Sinners who have histories. Sinners who have baggage. Sinners who have sinned in great ways. But he came to save sinners. We cannot lose sight of it. This is the true meaning of Christmas. This is the true meaning of Easter. This is the reason... For the church of Jesus Christ, it's a simple message that we treasure and we take to the world. We, and we need to hear it all afresh this morning. We all need to be reminded that Christ was slain for us. But some of you here this morning by pure statistics, I know that there are some here this morning who are hearing my words but who are still lost in their sins, who have heard that Jesus Christ has offered himself, who has been slain upon the tree, and yet they have not, you have not placed your faith in Christ. You have not trusted wholly in him for your salvation. You're still clinging to some of your own good deeds. You're still trusting in yourself to get yourself to heaven. But I implore you this morning, there is no good deed that you can do to earn this salvation. You need blood slain on your behalf. And thankfully, out of the goodness of God, he has provided his son. And so I plead with you this morning to to look to him, to trust in him, to look to his sacrifice, the gift that he gave of himself, and to believe wholly and trustingly upon him and to know that it is only through Jesus Christ that there is a way to the Father. It is only through him, through repentance and faith, that we can be saved. In fact, I encourage you to look in the, the passage this morning. It says that he was, this body was given for you. It was blood poured out for you. It mentioned twice, for you. This means that he took our place. This mean the, it means that he was sacrificed in our stead. And so we can come to him with all of our brokenness, with all of our sin, with all of our shame, with all of our guilt. We can come with, with all of it and have it forgiven today. The slate, Your slate can be washed clean today. All you need to do is repent and believe and cling to Christ and his blood will wash over you and wash you clean. Now, I don't offer this forgiveness. Jesus offers it. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. And you can take that all the way to the gates of heaven. And so... Don't you see the love of Christ displayed as he instituted the Lord's Supper here? He made it clear where his heart was. He loved us and gave himself up for us. He went to the cross for us. He was sacrificed for us. His blood was poured out for us. He is the true Passover lamb to which all Passover lambs look forward to. And he is the true Passover lamb to which all celebrations of communion look back to. And so in this text, we see the great love of our Savior When he established the ordinance of communion on that Thursday evening, he made it clear that every bit of suffering he was about to endure was for the benefit and the forgiveness of his church. And so we can respond in two ways. We hope in our reunion with him and we remember his sacrifice for us. I pray that as you've seen the Savior's heart this morning, you've been drawn to treasure him and love him all the more. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth in this text, that Christ was given for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we can participate in the benefits of the new covenant, that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can have our hearts washed clean. And I pray that this morning that you would open blind eyes, that you would humble proud hearts, and that you would enable each one of us to see Christ for who he truly is and to cling to nothing else. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.